The great American Benjamin Franklin said, early bed, early rise makes you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Nope. This is the Ideas Lab podcast, where you can learn from great creative and entrepreneurial minds how to turn your ideas into original businesses, books, and brands. Because in a crowded world, it pays to stand out. This is your host, John Williams, best-selling author and founder of the Ideas Lab London. Former speechwriter for Vice President Al Gore, Daniel Pink is now author of six New York Times bestsellers and has been named one of the 15 top business thinkers in the world. It's a particular treat for me to be speaking to Dan because his early books such as A Whole New Mind and Free Agent Nation inspired my first book, Screw Work, Let's Play. I've been reading Dan's latest book, When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, and that's absolutely fascinating too. We cover a lot of ground in this interview, from what time you should get up in the morning in order to be most productive. Spoiler alert, it's not necessarily the crack of dawn. The totally different skill set you need to stay valuable in the 21st century to how to write a New York Times bestseller. Check out the show notes at theideaslab.org slash podcast to find links and details of everything Dan and I talk about and photos and video clips from our conversation. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Dan. I really appreciate you sparing the time. Thank you for having me. I wanted to talk, first of all, actually, when I first discovered you, I think it was back in 2008 or 2009, and I was reading this book I have right here, in fact, A Whole New Mind, which was, that was your second book, wasn't it? And that is a fascinating one that set me off on a whole different path where you'd managed to encapsulate by looking at what was happening in the world and the research that was out there. But the way people work is fundamentally changing and the skills you need is changing. In fact, it says on the back, if it's likely that someone in China or India can do your work more cheaply than you can, or if a computer can do your work faster than you can, read this book. Because what you were saying was you needed a different set of skills. It's not good enough just to be smart and to have kind of logical skills and lots of knowledge. You needed other skills. I mean, can you say a little bit, just summarize quickly what those sure, things of are? Yeah. So, so you're, you got it exactly right, John. And the metaphor that I use to describe what's going on is the metaphor of our brain. Our brains, uh, your brain, my brain, all your listeners' brains are divided in half. You've got the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. Now, again, our, our brains are very, very complex. We use both sides of our brain for everything that we do. But our brains are also somewhat efficient in that they distributed tasks. And uh, there's a division of labor in our brain. The left side specializes in tasks that are logical, linear, sequential, analytical. The right side specializes in tasks that are more about synthesis rather than analysis, more about simultaneous processing than sequential processing, more about context rather than text. And that division of labor in our brain offers a metaphor. And it works basically like this. The sorts of abilities that used to be most highly prized have long been characteristic of that left hemisphere of the brain, logical, linear, sequential, um, spreadsheet kinds of abilities. And my argument is that today those abilities are necessary, absolutely, but they're no longer sufficient. And it's a different set of abilities, abilities more characteristic metaphorically of the right hemisphere of the brain, artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking. Uh, the sorts of things that are embodied, I think, by a lot of your viewers and listeners, 
uh, those are the abilities that are now first among equals, that there's a fault line out there. And the fault line is who has these right brain kind of abilities to go with their left brain kind of abilities and who does not. And that's a great combination. When you get the two together, I've noticed that the people who are really making waves in this era, in this millennium, are people who've got a strong combination of both. I mean, Steve Jobs is kind of a classic example, clearly knew a lot about technology, left brain skills perhaps, but also was immensely creative. And so, as you say, it's not enough to just have one. But although people have said the left-right thing, left-right brain concept is a simplification. It's kind of uh, oh, more yeah, complex, absolutely. Than that, isn't it? yeah, yeah. No, I, that's what I tried to, and that's what I tried to. That's what I tried to explain. In fact, I, I, I spend the first chapter of that book talking about what does the, the neuroscience really tell us about this, and you know, the idea that left, you know, like. You're using your left brain here only, and you're using your right brain here only is nonsense. But uh, but what isn't nonsense is that there are functional distinctions between the two hemispheres of the brain, and and that becomes a metaphor for describing the sorts of abilities that are that are necessary today. It's not as if you if you put people into a functional MRI that you know, only their right hemisphere is going to light up or only their left hemisphere is going to light up. Um, but metaphorically, um, what we need to do is to, to, to survive. And we see this now in the UK. We see this now in, in the States. We see this, it's, I mean, I actually throughout the entire EU. And, and for the moment, the UK is still part of the EU. We see this, um, we see this in, in all of the developing, in, in all of like the so-called developed countries. Um, you got to be able to do something that is hard to outsource and hard to automate. And that requires a very different set of, of, of skills. And it's skills that in many countries, I think, especially here in the United States, that we haven't taken seriously enough that we, we you know, things like empathy, uh, things like, um, um, you know, artistic sensibility, um, symphonic big picture thinking. Those are abilities that I think traditionally we have overlooked and undervalued, and they are becoming the ones that matter the most. Yeah, and and as you say, the education system, both in your country and in mine, continues to preference what we will call the the, the left brain stuff, and it's it's not a good idea. And what I and I quoted from you in my book is that you kind of inspired Screw a Let's Play, my first book, and that um, uh, that talked and quoted from you about if what you can do is replicable by somebody else, as you've mentioned in another country, then that's going to happen if those people are cheaper. And then ironically, what happened was that the book became quite popular for me and got, became translated into, uh, actually the new one's being translated into Chinese. It got translated into Malay, one of the Indian languages to Korean, Russian. So basically all the countries that we're competing against in the UK currently, in which I was warning people against in the UK, it's like, you know, these people are just as smart, just motivated. So um, all these things are, are definitely coming true. And I think you've managed to always capture these things a little bit before anybody else speaks about them, which is which is what makes your book so exciting. And the, the new one, which has come out this year, when the scientific secrets of perfect timing is really interesting. And the greatest accolade I had for this actually was from, apart from the fact it's been on a New York Times bestseller list for four months, the Helen who organized Salon uh, London where you gave her, gave a talk said, everyone I've given the book to has changed the way they organize their day. <laughs> and for me, that was like, okay, I've got to, I've got to read this book properly. So I've been, uh, I've been diving into that. And you go into some real depth in this book about 
when you should do certain things and when you're at your best and when you're at your worst. And one of the concepts is the, you know, the early, um, the early riser and the late riser, but you call them owls and larks. And also there's something in between called the third bird. Is there a simple test? Because when I first read about it um, or heard about, are you an early riser or are you a late riser? I couldn't quite pin myself into any one of those categories. You've got a nice simple test, haven't you? There's a lot more depth in the book, but. Oh yeah, there's a very there, first of all there's some there's some um, a very interesting uh, scientifically validated assessments out there. The the most prominent of which is only called the Munich Chronotype Questionnaire. Chronotype is basically your are you a morning person or an evening person or somewhere in between. There's also um, a, a pretty well validated questionnaire called the MEQ, the Morning Eveningness Questionnaire. But as you say, John, we there's a back of the envelope way to do it too, which we could do for you um, if you wanted to. So uh, one of the th- uh, so um, and and it's and it, it's help. So so what I want you to do is think about what chronobiologists again chronobiology, chrono time biology study of life. It's the study of our daily and other kinds of temporal based rhythms. Um, uh, chronobiology talks about what's called a free day. I want you to think about a free day. Now a free day is a day. You don't have to wake up to an alarm clock. You're not massively sleep deprived from three weeks of travel. You can just get up and, and go to sleep whenever you want. So on a free day, when would you typically go to sleep? I reckon it would be 1 a.m. or maybe 1.30. Uh, well, all right. And then when would, you typically, when would you typically wake up? I think I would go for about 9.30. 9.30. So let's say, we go one th- let's say you go 1.30 to 9.30. You got a good eight hours of sleep, which is healthy and what you should be doing, what all of us should be doing. Um, so what we're, what we're looking for here is your midpoint of sleep, your midpoint of sleep. So if your midpoint of sleep is, uh, so if one thirty to nine thirty, your midpoint of sleep would be five thirty. Yeah. Yeah. Five thirty. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, um, so here's what we know. Uh, if you're, uh, if your midpoint of sleep is before three thirty, you're a lark. You are not a lark, John. Uh, <laughs> I'm not surprised there. My friends who, who know me will not be surprised either. If your midpoint of sleep is after 5.30, uh, you're probably an owl. And if your midpoint of sleep is between there, um, you're probably a third bird. So what you are is you are right on the edge of owl and third bird. So you're not the owliest among the owls, but you're, you're owly. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, okay, right. So I'm towards, which is why, so I'm not a pure uh, late riser, but I'm, but I'm going that way. You're, you're close. You're very, you're, 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 you're close that you, sh- that, that it's worth, cons- it's worth actually, your, yours is a much more complicated, uh, owls in general and people that on that side of it, because here, you're, you're talking here about, like at this point, John, you're different from roughly 80% of the population here, that owls are, um, you know, about 20% of us are owls, about 15% of us are larks, and then two thirds of us are in the middle. So you are, you know, if you were to say 145 to 945, you would be in that owl, owl category. And that's actually really complicated. And, and it's interesting, actually, seeing about what you do and who you help, because the owl pattern, the evening pattern is, is not compatible with most corporate schedules. Um, that, it, that, that many owls have a very tough time dealing with the traditional world of work that makes you go to eight o'clock in the morning staff meetings. And so what you find is you find, not surprisingly, given what you do, you find a lot of owls saying, you know what, I'm going to go work for myself. I'm going to go do my own thing. 
because it just doesn't sync up very well to the traditional world of work. Um, also, the other thing that's interesting about owls is that owls and larks have, um, again, again, most people are right in the middle, but or, or in the middle. Uh, owls and larks have different personality characteristics as well. Yeah, uh, this is really tend, interesting. Larks tend to be uh, very high on, on things like conscientiousness uh, more than owls. Uh, they tend to be a little higher higher on things like like uh, agreeableness or likability. Um, um, they tend to be uh, more extroverted. Um, owls actually are um, more prone to certain kinds of antisocial behavior, um, drugs, alcohol, addiction. But hang on, uh, owls also test higher on intelligence tests. Uh, they also test higher on on tests of, on tests of creativity. So it it's sort of you know as a guy who helps out people, creative people who decided to work for themselves, it doesn't shock me that you're kind of an owly guy helping owly people. Yeah, yeah, that's. I think this is interesting because the a lot of the conventional success advice says, well, you have to get up at the crack of dawn, and successful people get up. So this is not true. Yeah, um, there's you know the, uh, the the great American Benjamin Franklin. Um, said, you know, uh, early to red, early to wise, early, early bed, early rise helps, uh, makes you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Nope. Um, it's, uh, it, it depends on what works for you. And this is the, this is the, this is really the key. Um, what we have to think about is that in, in the, during the day, we, we tend to, human beings tend to move through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery. Now, most of us, about 80% of us, 75, 80% of us move through in that order, a peak early in the day, a trough in the middle of the day, and then a recovery later in the day. But owls are different. Uh, owls are different, and they're much more complicated. And the thing about owls is that owls tend to hit their peak late afternoon, well into the evening, and that's one. And and they're not as analytically sharp early in the day. And so uh, a lot of offices require us just to be present and to be anal somewhat analytically sharp first thing in the morning. Uh, the help, the uh, early to bed uh, thing doesn't work for owls. That's not who they are. Um, and so for and so what's really important is that what owls should do, it, you know, is it, it, I mean, it's, it's actually it's really hard to be an owl in a corporate environment. But um, what they can do is they can, you know, they can talk to their boss. They can try to figure out ways to go in perhaps a little bit later. Uh, and they can try to look for ways to sequester doing their analytic work, their heads down focus work, um, much later in the day, perhaps when other people have gone home. So the idea is that whether you're an owl or a lark, uh, a lark having their peak in the morning and, and uh, the owl having their peak uh, later in the day, you should be doing your analytical work then. But in actual fact, they, there's other tasks that you're better at uh, at the opposite end of the scale when you're not necessarily the most energetic and focused. Exactly, exactly. So when we think about it, um, uh, if you think about, so, so the peak, the definition of a peak is, is when we are most vigilant. And vigilant means we can knock away distractions, okay? And so for owls, that's much later in the day, larks earlier in the day. Uh, there's another period um, where, there's also a period in the middle of the day when people just are terrible at most things. Uh, but there's another period uh, that we can that that uh, called that I call the recovery. Now, for the majority of the population, 75, 80 percent of the population, that occurs late afternoon, early evening. 
Um, so mood goes back up and they're less vigilant. For owls, it's a little bit more complicated, but um, during those non-optimal times, okay, so, so the middle of the day, let's say, you know, uh, 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. roughly, it's a very dangerous time. It's a dangerous time to be in hospitals. You see student test scores go down then. You see traffic accidents increase. Um, but what happens is, is that during these periods when we're not at our analytic optimal, which for owls is early in the day, for larks is later in the day, uh, we actually tend to perform reasonably well on, on certain kinds of creative tasks, uh, things that require more kind of mental looseness. Um, and so you can think of it like, let's say that you're, um, I mean, let's say you're a writer or, you know, or any kind of creative, a writer or designer or any kind of creative professional. Uh, you're better off coming up with ideas during that recovery period, but you're better off actually doing the work of execution during that um that peak period. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, uh, and, and on the subject of writing, I've got to ask about this because you've been so successful. You've had six successful books. I think most of them have been New York Times bestsellers. How do you, I'm guessing you're probably, a bit like me and a lot of creative people, you have, uh, you probably have a lot of ideas, a lot of things you could write about if it interests you. Would that be a fair statement or is it much simpler? Yeah. No, no, I, I, I do. Most of them aren't very good, but I have, but I have, I, ha, I have quantity, if not quality. Yeah. And so, how do you choose? So, at what point? So, if we take uh, when, for instance, at what point does the book start to form and go? Okay, this is the one I should do next. Yeah, that's a great question, and it's and it's not like there's an algorithm for it. But I'll tell you what I'll tell you what I do. So, I keep a running list of ideas, um, and I go back and review them periodically. And I find, as I was saying, most of the ideas are pretty bad. Um, and, and, you know, in reviewing the ideas for, uh, for, for books, for, uh, television programs, for films, for, for whatever, you know, I'll go back and, and look at them every six months or so. And as I said, a lot of them, I'll be like, oh, this is a terrible idea. I don't want to, this is no interest. It's stupid. And, and what I find is that a few ideas keep staying in the list segment after segment after segment that tells you something. Uh, and then in terms of, you know, and then I'll, I'll look at those when I'm at a juncture and say, OK, let me let me just go a little deeper into one of these ideas. So I'll do a little bit of research. And and for me, for books, um, I always write a, a pretty substantial book proposal uh, before writing a book. Uh, and I do that really for myself because um, I find that, you know, if, if I can't write 20, 30 pages about what this book is about, why it's interesting, why no one is do, has done it yet, why I'm the right person to do it, why there's an audience for it out there. It's probably not a very good book. Um, it's very easy to come up with an idea in a sentence length or a paragraph length, but you really stress test it if you try to, you know, say, hey, you know, let's write this as a full-fledged uh, uh, proposal. And so, so, so truly for, for the last time I was in this position, uh, I had an idea for a book and I started doing some research on it and I started writing a proposal and I got about, I got fairly substantial way through and said, nope, there's not a there there. And then the, and I, I actually did a second one where I said, I just don't think this is quite there yet. And, uh, and then I had, then I, then I was, had been playing around with this when idea. I did some more research on it and I said, well, wait a second, there's some serious research on here. And I just started writing the proposal. I said, oh, my God, you know, basically, it's like, I want to know more about this. Um, and so it's sort of and, and again, it's not algorithmic. It's it's somewhat intuitive. But I had an intuitive sense 
geez, this is pretty interesting. God, I, I you know, I mean, I, for this last book, I mean, I really started with almost all questions, no answers, uh, because I was making these these timing decisions in my own life. I wanted to make them better. And so I actually I wanted to read this book and unfortunately it didn't exist. So I had to write it. That's a really good test. Yes. And you work with, with some researchers, presumably, do you? Because I think between you, you read, was it 700 research yeah. studies or something? On this one, I brought in for the first time two very ex- two exceptional uh, research helpers, um, uh, both of them fairly recent university graduates here in the States who did kind of somewhat, somewhat, somewhat different things. And um, it was really helpful in just tracking through there was so much research on this because the research on timing is being done across maybe two dozen different fields. And some of the fields were things that I, you know, like, like for me to read a paper, I mean, I mean, here, I'm, I'm talking to you here at my desk. I mean, literally what would happen is, is that like a paper in molecular, okay, I can deal with social psychology and economics, but molecular biology, no, not my sweet spot. And so I'd read a paper in molecular biology, okay, sitting here, literally sitting here, sitting here at my desk. I mean, this is literally how I would do it. I have a pile of paper over here and I'd read it through and I'd underline a word and I'd write down all the words that I didn't even know what they meant. All right. And so, and there was a lot of them. And then I would go and look up, you know, read it through and say, okay, I, I don't know. And then look up what these words meant and then go back and read it again. It was just, it was, it was, uh, it was laborious. And then also, each thing that we ended up, I ended up working on, it's like, you know, um, what I needed was I needed some help on things like, let's say, um, like I, at one point I was doing some research and, I, and some reporting. I was like, oh, wow, belonging. That's a big deal. And I started looking up, hmm, what's the research look like on belonging? And I started looking at the research on belonging. It's like, oh, my God, there are like five people who've devoted their lives to researching on belonging. And so when I go to my research assistant and say, OK, great, I know there's a lot of research what are the 10 most important papers I need to read about, about belonging? So the, the two of them uh, were uh, outstanding and really, really helpful in getting this, uh, getting this done. Wow. Yeah. And, and so it, it sounds like a ridiculous question to ask, but um, what's your secret to writing a bestselling, a New York Times bestseller? <laughs> Aside from being a good author, uh, you know, a great writer and picking a subject that has lots of research and doing a hell of a lot of work researching it. Is there anything, any tip you would give to somebody else to go, this is how I think of what I think is going to be popular? I'll give you a sort of kind of maybe. I'll give you something that I think is worth thinking about as people are formulating ideas for books and trying to write books is, is the following. And this is another reason why it's worth writing a proposal, because again, a, a proposal includes what's the, you know, What's the book about? What are your initial thoughts on how it's going to be structured? That would likely change, but what's your initial thoughts on how it's going to be structured? Uh, and who's going to read this book? Uh, who is this book for? And to answer that question, I think one has to ask a question that, that writers very rarely ask and are uncomfortable giving an answer to, which is this. Who's not going to read this book? Who is this not for? And Because a lot of writers think that, that their books are for everybody. Oh, everybody would be interested in this book. And that just ain't true. Uh, so you can you can sometimes, and I think one of the keys is to say, who is not going to read this? Uh, who is not going to read this book? And um, and that helps you narrow who your audience who your who your audience is. I think that the keys they're very easy to enunciate. They're v- very difficult to execute and practice. 
you have to write a good book. You got to write something you're proud of and you have to work your butt off making it great. All right. That's absolutely essential. Even though there's some crappy books that, that sell well, like if you want to be able to look at yourself in the mirror, you got to write something that's great and that you're going to be proud of the rest of your life. Uh, and the second thing is to actually be is to think about what is that audience of people who you think would be really, really into this? And can I try to reach and serve that audience over a long time? Um, as robustly as I can. And maybe that initial audience will then expand. That often is the case. Uh, but uh, you need to know who is the book for. And an important question in figuring that is who is the book not for? Oh, that's really interesting. That's, that's really helpful. And um, yeah, so I suppose this could be a sensitive question, but do what's currently interesting you right now as topics to explore i don't know how how much information you can give us on that yeah no i'm not trying yeah i have no desire to be secretive i'm just trying to figure things out right now i mean there are a bunch of things there are a bunch of things that i am uh a bunch of things that i'm wondering about um but again the fact that i wonder about it doesn't mean it's necessarily a good book or or a book that i am best best person to write so you know, among the things that I'm really sort of wondering about now, and I, and it, just because it's very top of mind, both in the UK and in in the states, is you know, is identity. How do people form identity? I think identity is driving a huge amount of the politics here in the states, and as well as in the UK. Um, like many people, I am very disturbed by this disregard for facts and this idea that truth is entirely relative, um, and you know, uh, and how much reasoning is actually how much what we think of as reasoning is actually not reasoning at all. It's essentially motivated by one's opinions and identity and ideology. So that's among the things that I'm, that I'm, um, that's among I, the I, things lo- that I love I'm, both uh, those topics and so they're yeah. both very, very live topics, aren't they? And, um, and you know, one of the fascinating things about, about social media is that it's allowed everyone to just immerse themselves in their own bubbles and beliefs. Some pretty crazy things that in the past, would have been very, very fringe uh, beliefs and now, you know, are gaining ground. And um, I consider personally the anti-vax movement in that audience, in that sector. You're totally right about that. I mean, I mean, right. I mean, come on. It's like every pediatrician will tell you, get your kid vaccinated. Give me a freaking break. Uh, And things like that. Or even things, even things like, um, uh, you know, is the, is the climate changing and and have human beings contributed to it? Yes. All right. That's that's what's going on. Now, we can have a reasonable debate over what should we do about that. All right. What's our response to that? Hey, listen, I don't think there's a clear answer to that question. But on the underlying facts, absolutely. Listen, John, I live. I don't know how much it made news over there, but there was this this is crazy stuff going on uh, where people were alleging that 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 Hillary Clinton was running a child sex ring from the basement of a pizzeria. All right. That's right near me. I can walk to that place. And I'm thinking, what? Is, what? what is, and, and then some crazy dude shows up with a gun at that, it being America and all. He shows up with a gun at this place. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what has happened to this? What has happened to this world? Um, it's a bizarre situation where we've now got access to all the world's information. And it seems to be making some of us dumber, as far as I can tell, which is well, an unexpected outcome. We're, we're, because we're seeking out, um, we're seeking out what we believe to be true, and we also have a 
a, in a, you know, and again, it's a mixed blessing. You know, I, I think that in some cases, the gatekeepers uh, have had a deleterious effect on on diversity of voices. And um, I think that there are many ways self-replicating. So you don't hear as many voices. On the other hand, some of the, those gatekeepers also did some kind of hygienic job of just keeping out viruses. And so um, anyway, it's a really uh, it's a really it's a really, really tough uh, really, really tough issue. I have uh, cut back significantly on my the time I've spent on social media in part because of that. Yeah. No, I could understand. That's fascinating. I'd love a book on either of those subjects. And uh, they'd probably both be, or either of them would be very contentious. Uh, but uh, it would be a fascinating read. So um, I think we perhaps we should stop there, Dan, because I know you're a busy person. Thank you so much for making the time. And for anybody who wants to learn how to structure their day and know when to do things, um, this is it's an absolutely wonderful book. When so I can recommend that. And pretty much any of your books are just a, a wonderful read and really helpful. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, thank you. Thanks for having me, John. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ideas Lab podcast. Please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you could leave us a review. You can get links and details of everything mentioned in the podcast in the show notes, along with photos and video clips from many of our episodes. Just go to theideaslab.org forward slash podcast. Thank you.